Graham mentioned that sometimes he thinks I sit in meetings going, be quiet, I've got the answer. <laughs> Which is really not the case. I just uh, uh, find that my brain does not work as quickly as other people's and I often need a bit of, bit of time and space. Um, I, there's this thing that I've noticed uh, in, in our marriage, Sherilyn and my marriage, that it turns out, um, seems to happen in other people's marriages too. But Sherilyn does this wonderful thing where, and I guess it's a, an outworking of the fact that we don't get a lot of time in the season of life that we're in to, you know, to, to actually talk. Uh, it can be a bit ships in the night with everything that we've got going on. But just as I'm falling asleep, she'll ask me like a big question. <laughs> Does anyone else have that in their marriage? Like I'm just drifting off to sleep and she'll say, do you think we should homeschool the kids? Oh, I can talk about that now. So that's how I feel in every meeting. Not only uh, do I think slow, I also talk slow a lot of the time, and I, I can get sick of the sound of my own voice. This might not come off, but I wonder if, if someone feels like they could do the, the reading for us this morning. Um, it's on the page. I can give you the Bible in the translation we're going to use. No, going, going. Zeke. I'll just put this on the lectern. I appreciate you coming out. I was, I was willing to carry the mic to you, Zeke. No, no, it's a good option. Wow, this is a lot more complicated than my Bible. I'm lost. <laughs> uh, Jesus presented in the temple. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation, consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying, coming up to them at the very moment she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. God's word. God's word in Zeke's voice. That's better than God's word in my voice. I think there was a moment there where Chris and I, it was like we had one of those old-fashioned uh, cars with two steering wheels and we were both... Uh, did did dri drivers, teachers have those? 
where we were both steering in different directions because you lost the you lost the text there. But anyway, um, I'm not going to be able to address this whole passage this morning. You'll be relieved to hear. Um, it comes out of the lectionary, but I think it, it's good to kind of get in context, right? Uh, this is a great little, um, nerds would call it a pericope, a section, a discrete section where there's a story. Um, and so I'm going to pick the eyeballs out of it just to a degree. That's probably a terrible turn of phrase, but there you have it. Um, what I did want to take the opportunity uh, to do with this passage this morning as I was praying and thinking about it and, and preparing was to assure you and to reassure you. That's a great story. Every time I go and read you know, the, the Gospels, there's so, there's so much you can get out of it. Um, but, but what stood out to me was the need to assure you this morning or perhaps reassure you, that it is not too late. That it's not too late. I think we've arrived at uh, that point in the year where they're already, maybe you've been there for a while, where you're beginning to get a sense of, when you think about your hopes, dreams, aspirations for the year, your um, resolutions, as it were, you're beginning to get some sort of sense of what you're going to be able to grasp, and what might be slipping away? Uh, that exercise regime. You know how many uh, you know how many gym sessions or runs or walks you've skipped uh, over uh, and against what you had sort of intended to do this year. Uh, you have some sort of sense of how the business is going, how much money's going through the door, how much money people have to spend, and so forth. Uh, it can feel like it could be too late to actually grasp what you intend to and hope to grasp for the year. I want to tell you that it is not too late. It's not too late to grasp, to reach out for and grasp. I want to suggest the most important thing that could be reached out for this year, the most important thing that you might be able to grasp for the year. What is that thing? <laughs> well, I'm a pastor, so you might have some sort of sense of what's coming down the line. What should be our priority for 2024? And I'm speaking to uh, the Christians in the room. I'd say that's most of us. Don't want to assume that we all are. But what should be at the top of our list, what should be our priority, I want to suggest, is the kingdom of God. Jesus says, in a few different ways, he's got different turns of phrase to communicate the nearness of the kingdom, doesn't he? The grasp ability, the fact that it's not out there somewhere far away, somewhere difficult to grab a hold of, but no, it is near, it is sometimes even, uh, Jesus says, within already, within us, within our grasp. You might have read enough of the scripture. You might have listened to uh, Graham's messages the last couple of weeks closely enough to be reminded of the fact that you could arguably make the case, you could, you, you could uh, argue, you could make the case that the most important thing that Jesus goes on about, the focus of his ministry, as it were, is this very thing that I am saying should be at the top of our priority lists 
not just for this year, but for any year, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like this, Jesus says. The kingdom of God is like that, Jesus says. If you want to enter into, if you want to enter into the kingdom and so forth. Sometimes it's said uh, by people holding microphones like me in situations like this, and in fact, I may have even said it, that um, Jesus, when he gives the Great Commission, before he ascends to heaven, uh, uh, is sort of um, giving, uh, you know, his final operating instructions, as it were, and that's true, but there's a bit more to it. I was reading in Acts uh, just recently, um, in the first chapter, where Luke is kind of saying what he's going to talk about, uh, and he's talking about the fact that um, the Holy Spirit um, is, is a prospect that the apostles can expect. He talks about the fact that Jesus visits with them, the, re- the resurrected Jesus, and it says in uh, the, chapter, the first chapter of Acts, verse 3, after his suffering, he presented himself to them, the apostles, and gave many convincing proofs, the apostles and disciples, that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke to them. What did he speak to them about? What was at the top of his list? What was priority for him as he was um, spending this last 40 days with the disciples before he he leaves uh, God's mission in the world up to them? His top priority was the kingdom of God. It's kind of a confronting thought, really. At least it was confronting to me this week when I thought that Jesus' top priority was the kingdom. Uh, Because when I think about the shape of my life, I can't always say with as much conviction as I'd like to be able to that it is actually at the top of my list. And I wonder if there was something of this at uh, play in the words uh, that we've read already today from Luke 2 of Simeon, uh, where he says, For my eyes have seen salvation, a light of revelation for the Gentiles, and a glory for the people of Israel. Uh, He goes on, This child is destined to cause the rising and falling of many in Israel. And this is the bit that I've emboldened for emphasis. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. When I hold my heart up to this priority of Jesus's... Sorry? (laughs) I thought you were just going to say something. It's weird that I might hold my heart up. But I've said that anyway. Um, You know, when I compare what's going on in my heart to what must have been uh, on Jesus's heart when he spends that time with the apostles, I wish I could say... There was no gap. I wish I could say there was complete overlap, but I can't. Jesus' kingdom and the emphasis that he puts on it reveals something. I want to say it reveals a lot, actually. Um, When I think about kingdom language, and I think this is where Graham's camped for the last couple of weeks, it's a very, like, out there in the world touchable, tangible, real-world concept. It's possible that we've spiritualized it somewhat, but when you read Jesus speaking about the kingdom and when you actually read closely the way that the gospel authors talk about him as a king, um, it had real political kind of consequence in the world. 
to the extent that, and this won't be uh, a newsflash for most of you, but it is always worth kind of pointing out again, to the extent that it was at play in what got him killed, actually. The political nature of Jesus' kingship, <laughs> the fact that he spoke uh, in those terms, the fact that he was identified by many as this kind of messianic figure, uh, the fact that he was talked about in terms of the Son of God, in the same way that um, Caesar often was, it was of political consequence. He was challenging people about something that had shape in the real world. And so, when I, uh, you know, think about that, what does the kingdom look uh, like in the world? It looks like political change. It looks like social change. It looks like uh, economic stuff, real world stuff. It did then and it does now. Jesus has a funny way of managing these things though because if I ask the question what did Jesus's kingdom reveal, the kingdom of God as manifest through this uh, and we see him as a baby here in the text presented in the temple, I think it's amazing that there were these two faithful people who had a sort of spiritual revelation of the fact that this baby was going to be the one to change the world. You don't know that naturally, right? You don't, uh, you're not hanging out in the temple and, and, uh, and it kind of occurs to you naturally that a baby that's coming in to be blessed is, is, is going to turn things upside down. I think only God can do that. But um, when I think about the way that Jesus goes about uh, kingdom stuff, it's maybe not in the way that we would expect, right? Did Jesus reveal the corruption of evil empires, of worldly kingdoms in the sense that, you know, I said it, it will have real shape, it'll be political, it'll be economic, it'll be social, the kingdom. Well, he kind of did, but maybe not to the extent even that his disciples hoped that he would, right? They were hoping maybe that he would really grasp political power, that he would challenge the Roman Empire, kick them out of the Holy Land. Did he do that? Well, not, not as such. In fact, um, you know, he, he ministers to <laughs> Roman soldiers. Imagine the insult of it. In terms of what the kingdom of God manifests through Jesus might reveal, what Jesus' kingdom might reveal... Did he reveal the complicity of religious people with the kingdoms of the world? Well, to a greater extent, I would suggest, than the, than the evil of earthly empires. Um, we might think about the fact that he spends so much time, as Pastor Graham reminded us, sort of going after the Pharisees. At the same time, you know, I think about one figure in the New Testament who probably embodies complicity as much as anyone. Matthew, the tax collector, what does Jesus do? He says, come and be one of my disciples. I want to hang out with you. So he does it in such a way as to probably challenge our categories or at the least the way that we might go about it. And I think part of the reason why he doesn't go at it as sort of straightforwardly as we might. I mean, for one, he's God <laughs> and his ways sort of go beyond our ways. But I want to suggest that one of the things at play is that people already knew 
the nature of the problems to a significant degree. We know in so many ways what's going wrong with the world. We can, we can watch the news, right? Um, we feel it. We, we, we feel it in our bank accounts. We feel it when we see one leader after the next done for corruption, going back on the word or whatever. People were the same then. And I think this is why John the Baptist's ministry made sense then. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of challenging story in some ways, but uh, one of the things that was drawing people out to John the Baptist was that they knew that there was something wrong with the world. John the Baptist, and I've talked about this before, because you sort of need to do a little bit of study to get this, but what John the Baptist was calling people to was uh, a new exodus, right? So in the same way that God had saved the Hebrew slaves from Egypt and brought them into the promised land, given them a new identity, in the same way that he had redeemed his people from Babylon, John the Baptist is tapping into a sense amongst the people of Israel that they're under the screw of earthly empires again, that there might not be a Nebuchadnezzar, there might not be a Pharaoh, but there's an emperor. It's profaning God's promises to them, it would seem. It's polluting the Holy Land. They might be in their their land, their homeland, as it were, but they're still somehow in exile. And John the Baptist does something really interesting and it's completely in line with the way that Jesus goes on to engage with this matter of the kingdom. Is he says, sure there's problems with Rome, sure there's problems with a corrupt Jewish uh, ruling religious class, but if you want to come on this new exodus, what do you need to do? This is repent. <laughs> repent. Don't take up arms. Don't overthrow the temple. Repent. And so the question of what Jesus' kingdom reveals might more pertinently be thought about in terms of what does it reveal about me? This is where I got to with this passage this week. What does it reveal about my heart? I can tell you, I mean, I can tell you about the problems at a political level, social level, economic level to some degree. Maybe as good as the majority of people I meet on the street. Do I know the solutions? No. Something of a relief that <laughs> Jesus says, actually, don't start there. Start here. The Russian um, intellectual uh, who, who endured terrible um, sort of punishment uh, under the Soviet Union um, in the gulags, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he, he writes um, about it in a book called The uh, Gulag Archipelago. He says this, The line that separates good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. The prophet Taylor Swift says it a little bit differently. 
It's me. I'm the problem. It's me. At tea time, everybody agrees. There's a lyric for you, right? I mean, sorry, if you've never heard of Taylor Swift before, um, up-and-coming artist, she might have a career one day. Keep an eye out for her. She's big on tea time, apparently. That's where it all happens. But you see what I'm saying? I'm the problem. <laughs> in, in the way that Jesus kind of hands me the kingdom, the pathway into it, the closeness of it, the reachability of it, comes down to not whether I can identify problems up there in the world or do anything about them. And I do believe that God can lead us there, but that's not where he asks us to start. Right from the get-go with John the Baptist, preparing the way for Jesus' ministry, it starts with me. And it starts with repent. Repent. Seek ye first his kingdom and righteousness. Start with your own heart. Start with repenting. That's what I've been under <laughs> this week. And, and I need to hear that, right? Because let me tell you about me. Let me tell you about me. I reflexively trust my own take on the world. I'm just reflexively oriented to my way of being in the world. If I can stand back from, from it for a moment, maybe I don't think it's better than yours, but I almost inescapably can't help but see the world my way and want it to be my way. I'm the problem. What's more, I, I want more. What I got is not enough. <laughs> I mean, it is. Again, if I stand back, I stand with Jesus, but reflexively, I want more. My pay packet hits our accounts. The first thing I think about are the things that I want to get, <laughs> right? The things that I want to do with that money. I am so concerned with self-gratification that I even battle to see other people as as fully human as I am in all sorts of ways. The perennial challenge of seeing people as not just means of gratification for me, players in my story, but people who have as much value as me. I am the problem. If you've got more than me, again, I can stand back from this, but when I don't, and I don't naturally, I want what you have. I'm the problem. I can't stop. My appetites have no end. I battle to say it's enough, but at core I am insatiable. The things that bring me pleasure and joy 
I'll just keep doing them. I'm the problem. And when I don't get things my way, don't stand in my way. Because there's a seed of anger deep in my heart. (laughs) And it sprouts, right? Sometimes I can go months without realising it's there. But it comes up, (laughs) reminding me, I don't have it under control, I'm the problem. And what's more, for all of the high ideals I might have, I don't really have energy (laughs) for things that don't come from this dark place in me a lot of the time. I think about getting out of so many of the commitments that might serve other people. (sighs) I'm the problem. The good news, though, that gives me hope, (laughs) that keeps me moving forward, despite the darkness of my heart. Jesus is the solution. (laughs) Jesus is the answer. We're going to take communion and get the band up here. love that story where Peter uh, and he might join me in saying he's the problem, St. Peter denies Jesus in the way that I so often deny him with my actions, with the orientation of my heart and there's this discussion that goes on about who Jesus is and Peter answers you know, the others say, maybe Elijah, maybe John the Baptist. Peter answers, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And how does Jesus respond? He says, blessed are you, Peter, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are now, once Simon, now Peter, the rock. this rock I will build my church and I'll give you the keys to the kingdom what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven Jesus draws a straight line between this revelation that Peter has about who he is and the kingdom coming in power establishment of God's just reign on earth, the end of all injustice, the end of evil evil empires. If Peter was the problem like, I'm the problem, (laughs) Jesus says, the Spirit reveals to you 
who I am. And that's how the kingdom comes. You see, God (laughs) is so willing to work with us. And he's so gracious. But the mystery of Jesus leaving God's mission to us, he has confidence in he knows it's not about us it's a revelation of the spirit to God's people that Jesus is king a call to repent an acknowledgement that it's beyond us in our humanity it goes beyond our capacity and then to live of that revelation that he is God that he is king that we're broken we're the problem but he chooses us anyway he loves us he empowers us by the spirit to overcome not just the darkness in our own hearts the darkness in the world going to uh, just read Matthew 26 a passage where Jesus breaks bread and, uh, and shares this meal that we're about to share would you stand with me I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who has the courage to join me where the problem lies (laughs) and I don't mean just agreeing that I'm the problem you're welcome to do that as well look forward to your emails tomorrow perhaps you feel like you can put your hand up and say, oh, I'm, I'm the problem. God help me. Even if you can't, I would challenge you, encourage you as you come forward to receive the bread and wine this morning, to weigh that. Weigh that as a possibility. 